Well, tonight we're going to talk about Islam under the heading of theism. There are, there are similarities to, between Islam and Christianity and Islam and Judaism. In fact, certain aspects of Islam looks a lot like uh, ancient Judaism. But of course, there's also some marked differences, uh, some significant differences. So just some notable facts, and we're on page 42 of your, your notes there. Give or take, one billion people in the world adhere to Islam. I say it, adhere because obviously not every person that says they adhere to a faith practices their faith. And I know this because I was once offered drugs and alcohol in a purely Muslim country by a Muslim. And uh, that's not allowed in Islam. But this guy considered himself Islamic, but he still was into this kind of stuff. And just in case you're wondering, I did say no. Um, it's, it's, it's called the world's fastest growing religion, but not because of conversion growth. It's because many of the countries within which Islam flourishes has a high birth rate. So they're, they're, they're just having a lot of children. Indonesia has the largest percentage of Muslims in its population. There's 120 million Muslims just in Indonesia, and that represents 13% of all the Muslims in the world. So pretty, pretty significant. The word Islam means submission, and it's derived from the word peace. Now, sometimes when you're looking at uh, articles, people will define words like Islam or jihad differently, and you're like, well, why is there so many different definitions? It's because it's, it's a Semitic language, Arabic, and just like Hebrew, a lot of words are based on a three-consonantal root. So in Hebrew, every single word is a derivation of a three-consonantal word. And depending on the vowels you add or subtract or place around those consonants changes the meaning. So if you read Hebrew well, they just don't even have the vowels in it. So if you take a word out of its context, it could mean a lot of different things if the vowels are missing. So that's why sometimes when you're reading articles, whether it's about something to do with Hebrew or Arabic, it's not that everyone just is making up their own definitions. It's because the language is built differently and it has a, a breadth of meaning to it that some languages don't have. But generally speaking, Islam means submission, but its consonants are derived from the word peace. Now, obviously, the most notable person historically in, in Islam, from our perspective, is Muhammad. And I want to talk a little bit about his background. So we have a number of bullet points here that sort of outline his, his life. He, he was an interesting person. He was born in Arabia, in Mecca, in 570 A.D., so, you know, roughly, give or take, 550 to 600 years after Christ. So when you think of Islam, you generally are thinking of him being born in the 6th century, the 500s, and then it sort of taking off in the 7th century, which would be the 600s. His, his background was uh, a prominent family. Uh, 
but his father died a few days before his birth, and his mother died when he was six. So he essentially was raised without his parents in his formidable years. So he was passed over to his uncle, Abu Talid, and as they traveled, they had a bit of a nomadic bent to them, as did most people in that area of the world. Based upon his perceptions of Christianity and Judaism, which, which to a large degree are actually positive if you read them in the Quran, the problem is sometimes they're positively wrong. What I mean by that is he, he says a lot of positive things about Jews and, and Christians, but it's clear that he doesn't always understand what Jews and Christians actually teach. For instance, there's evidence in the Quran that he thought, he thought that Christians think that the Trinity is composed of Father, Son, and Mary. Well, there's, there's actually no historical Christian group of any sort or stripe or denomination that's ever taught that. But So it seems like he probably had some, some awareness of Christianity, but he also, there was some measure of confusion. And he probably was then exposed to Jews, and he might even have been exposed to some heretical Christians, because some of the other stuff he believed uh, probably was a result of exposure to uh, false teaching within the Christian movement. It's unlikely, it's possible, but it's unlikely that he was exposed to Orthodox Christians. And I put a small O there because I'm not talking about the Eastern Orthodox Church. It didn't exist at the time. I'm just talking about Christians that held to the fundamental doctrines of historic Christianity. Now, when he was 25 years old, uh, he married. He married a woman named Khadija. Now, she was significantly older than him. She was 40 at the time, but she was very wealthy. She was a widow. She had a number of children. And in many ways, while she was his wife, she was a little bit of a mentor to him as well, by virtue of the fact that she was 15 years older. And in fact, uh, tradition says that when Muhammad first received some of his visions, he was actually unsure whether they came from God or the devil. And it was Khadija that had a pretty profound influence on him, convincing him that they came from God, or Allah, as he uh, called him. Uh, She had a number of uh, uh, children. At age uh, 40, uh, he received his first revelation in a cave near Mecca. It's called Mount Hira. Now, this isn't a particularly uh, large cave. I I think the cave itself, you could probably... stretch your arms out about four times and you'd be across it one way or or into it and then i think it's maybe a meter less than two meters wide so it's actually a fairly small cave and it's in a mountain that's only like six or seven hundred feet in the air but it's actually a place that many uh muslims visit during the hajj which we'll talk about a little bit later but a very small cave it's said that sometimes he went there with his wife, sometimes he went there to meditate, sometimes he went there to pray. And during one of these encounters, uh, he received his first revelation. Now, he's very specific about the source and substance of the revelation, because obviously this, the substance he ended up writing down. But the source he believed was Gabriel. And he claimed that Gabriel, the angel, visited him and brought a command to read or recite the Quran. Now, the Quran can be spelt different ways in English. I've given you two spellings there with a Q or with a K. But literally, Quran means reading or recitation, which he received over three periods of time during his life. Now, there, there is a, a, 
a, a different understanding between the three Abrahamic faiths about the nature of how the revelation was received. So in Judaism and Christianity, whether it's the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament or the New Testament or the whole thing, we believe that God inspired the writers of Scripture to write what he wanted them to write, but in doing so, he didn't overcome their personality, their culture, their context, their intellect. So that's why when you read the Bible, there's different personalities reflected in the scriptures. So Luke actually writes in a markedly distinct kind of Greek than Mark does. And Matthew writes different than John. And Paul writes differently than the writer of Hebrews. They actually use different literary structures, different styles of rhetoric, not just different genres of literature, but it's actually a, they actually demonstrate very different writing styles. So it almost sounds maybe bad to say, but Luke's Greek is superior to Mark's. <laughs> or the writer of Hebrews, his rhetorical structures are superior to any other New Testament book. He was probably a trained rhetorician. And so we, we don't have a problem with the concept that as the writer's writing it out, that he's thinking, he's engaged, he's, he's aware of what he's writing, but that God is overseeing it to make sure that what is given to his people is true and profitable. But in, in Islam, it's dictated. So they would say that the Quran is dictated by God. In a sense, Muhammad is overcome by God and, and almost in a robotic way just writes out what's being recited to him. Now, just as an aside, Muslims will say that if you read the Arabic of the Quran, that it is unlike any other Arabic. It is beautiful. It's profound. Like the, the, the way that it's written is just unbelievable and in and of, its, in and of itself testifies to the uh, truthfulness of its claims. And I don't read Arabic. I don't, I don't know any Arabic in written form. But uh, I've had people who read Arabic tell me that it's atrocious to the point that parts of it are nonsensical and actually not even readable, like that it's grammatically uh, gibberish. So there's different views out there on the quality and caliber of the Arabic of the Quran, and it's the only book of the Abrahamic face that is open to such divergent perspectives as to the quality of the language itself. In other words... You don't have Arabic speakers or Muslims, for example, or Jews criticizing. You don't have Jews criticizing the quality of the New Testament or Arabs criticizing the quality of the New Testament or quality of the Old Testament in terms of its language. But there's widely divergent views on the quality of the Arabic of the uh, Quran. So he receives this revelation and as I mentioned to you earlier, he's a little bit unsure 
about its truthfulness. At first, he thought he might be possessed by demons, which are called jinn, J-I-N-N, in Islam. And jinn are described as fiery creatures that don't produce smoke. So they're, they're bright, usually described in terms of flames, but there's no smoke emanating from them. So he went back and his wife and his cousin assured him that the words that he was receiving were true. Now, different than Jesus, Jesus claimed divinity. Muhammad didn't claim divinity, but he did claim that he was a prophet. He was born into a time where the Arab tribes were fractured politically and also religiously. So most of the Arabs at the time would have been polytheistic, meaning that they believed in multiple gods. And Muhammad began to preach against their idolatry and their infanticide. In other words, their practice of offering their their babies to foreign gods. And at first he was met with resistance, as are most catalytic world religious leaders or religious leaders that go on to form world religions. When his uncle and his wife died in 620, so that would have put him in and around the 50-year of 50 year of age mark he was threatened with death and fled to Yahrib which is now known as Medina and this flight marks the beginning of the Islamic calendar called Hegira Muhammad became the uh, both the religious and the political leader of Medina and uh, then there's a, a series of battles that take place. So now he, he moves from being a religious and political leader to a phase of his life marked by um, con- military conquests and battles. So the Meccans, the inhabitants of the city of Mecca, try to destroy Muhammad, but he succeeded in defeating their army in 630. Muhammad, uh, Muslims sometimes claim that this dispute was peacefully resolved, but I think most historians of various religious background would would dispute that he enters mecca he destroys all the idols but the kaaba now the kaaba is a sacred shrine holding uh, what what is believed to be a black stone meteorite and this black stone meteorite is uh the you might have seen it it's it's kind of gilded in a uh I don't know what the, the shape would you would consider this kind of a shape, but it's gilded in like a uh, a, a silver has a silver strip down each side of it, and it's in the square of Mecca. And so when Muslims go there now for the Hajj, that's what they uh, pray toward because they believe that that marks the place where Abraham tried to offer his son Ishmael, not Isaac, on the altar. Now, it's actually broken and cracked now because it was stolen at one point and brought back. But they say they're not worshipping it, but they they take a pil- pilgrimage there to uh, pray to that spot. So it's considered a holy spot. And then at the age of 62, on June 8, 632, he dies. His name means the praised one in Arabic. So lots of different perspectives on Muhammad. Uh, one of the things that Christian apologists and others often levy against Muhammad is his plural marriages and the fact that when he was well into his 50s, he married uh, a child. And um, I remember debating a a Muslim 
about this, a Muslim friend of mine about this at one point, and I said, you know, I think she was 11 or so. I said, don't you think it's kind of weird that a 50-some-odd-year-old man is, you know, with a, an 11-year-old girl? Now, I think many Muslims will say that they didn't consummate the marriage until she was, like, closer to 15. But uh, his response was, well, girls matured quicker back then. So that was the response that he, he gave me. But a lot of people would consider that inappropriate regardless of culture or religious background. Joy? Yeah, well, un understandably, but it is still a point worth being aware of because, no, but I mean, at some point in the conversation, it's it's a conversation worth having because it does speak to his character and, or at least his his moral persuasion. Yeah, I understand that, which is a, which is a, which is a convenient catch in Islamic theology that you're not allowed to criticize the prophet or the conversation's done. But, um, you know, as, as, as much as that's, because um, I've talked to a lot of mu Muslims. In fact, I've talked to more Muslims probably than I've talked to Roman Catholics over the years. And I've pointed that out. You know, you, 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 your religion disallows for debate. Now, obviously in Christianity, if someone starts attacking the character of Jesus, we have a problem with that, blaspheming him or whatnot. But... <clears throat> we, Generally speaking, we still would continue the conversation with someone that doesn't know the Lord because we believe that they're in spiritual darkness. And we may be offended by what they say, but we don't threaten them. But the, the catch in Islam is it's very difficult to have those kind of conversations because of this convenient little, well, we can, we can criticize your Jesus, but you can't criticize our Muhammad. And so I don't spend a great deal of time... Uh, I'm aware of that when I'm talking with Muslims, but if we're going to have a if we're going to have a debate, we need to be able to debate all points. So I, I will have a conversation with them about my concerns about Muhammad's characters and character and claims. So it's good for you to be aware of a little bit about his past and some of the things that he did or didn't do, right? So good point. So he dies, and then he's succeeded by. Uh, one of his followers, and there are a number of them, but they're basically known as caliphs or caliphs. Now, what happens is there's a man by the name of Ali. I think he's Muhammad's cousin. I think he's his cousin and his son-in-law somehow, so there's some sort of a dual relationship. And a certain group want Ali, could be getting his name wrong, but I think it's correct, to be the uh, successor to Muhammad. But there's debate, so he backs out. And there's a couple of other guys that end up stepping in, and they become the next caliphs of Is Islam. And then the fourth guy out, through a series of political maneuvering, becomes Ali again. So he's still alive, and he becomes the fourth caliph or caliph of Islam. Now, 
in this string of four guys, there's growing debate and divide among Muslims as to who the rightful successor is. And this is what uh, gives way to the, the split. So there's two, two, denom two denominations, two large denominations within Islam. The, wo the one group is the Shia, and then there's the Sunnis. Now, the Sunnis compose like 75 to 90% of present-day Muslims. So the Shia, I know these are quite broad numbers. I'm not sure why they're not more specific, but that's what it says in the literature. Somewhere between 10 and 25% are Shia. And the Shia will only follow the Ali string, whereas the Sunnis will follow the string of other successors and the hadiths and writings that come out of them. So there's two, we could say there's two major denominations within Islam, but in fact there's many more. Some of them have gone extinct, but the Shia form of Islam has been divided up into like at least a dozen or more sub-denominations. And some of these denominations uh, believe that, like one group believed that Muhammad actually was God um, and sort of in integrated almost some elements that are sound more like our view of Jesus and applied those to, to Muhammad and so forth and so on. Through, through war and that, they've risen and fallen. Some have gone extinct. Some have just sort of fizzled out. So there's a number of different, uh, there's the Druze. You might have heard of the Druze. That's a form of Shiaism. There's uh, a group, I think it's called the um, Nazarene or Nazi or something like that. And they have a, a man that is supposed to be the direct descendant of Muhammad's adopted son or something like that. And he's actually uh, uh, one of the richest men in the world today. He lives in... Um, I think it's Switzerland, but he has British British citizenship. And I don't know how to what degree he practices his faith, but he's considered a leader of that strand of, of the Shia Islam. So it's quite a fascinating history. A lot of different groups that have come out of it. Muslims will often poke at Christianity because of its multiple denominations, but there's actually multiple denominations and perspectives and beliefs within uh, Islam as well. Okay? Uh, let's talk about, in a, in a broad way, let's talk about the overarching belief systems and structures and doctrines of Islam. So Muslims believe in, that there is one God, therefore they are theists, not polytheists, not pantheists. They are theists. They believe in one God who's unique, who's incomparable. And uh, in the angels that are created by him, so they do believe in uh, uh, angels, uh, in the prophets, through whom his revelations are brought to mankind, in the day of judgment and individual accountability for actions, in God's complete authority over human destiny and in life after death. Now, interestingly, and many of you I'm sure are already aware of this because you've talked to Muslims, but Muslims believe in a chain of prophets that start from Adam, and include many of the names that you're familiar with because they're found within the Bible. Men like 
Noah and Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Job and Moses and Aaron and David and Solomon and Elias, or what we would call Elijah, Jonah, John the Baptist, and Jesus. So when they mention these names, they'll often say, peace be upon him, because they consider these to be holy men. But they believe that God's final message to man, which they would say is just a reconfirmation of his eternal message and a summing up of all that's gone before was revealed in the prophet Muhammad through Gabriel. So when you think of, when you think of Islam, you've got to think of a, a chain of more equal prophets, equal in their humanity. But the, what makes Muhammad special is that he was the final one, not that he claimed to be God. And not that he was necessarily better than the rest, but he was the final one. And that kind of gives him uh, more attention. So when one becomes a Muslim, then they simply need to say that there is no God apart from God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. And by this declaration, a believer announces his or her faith in all God's messengers uh, and the scriptures that they, they brought. So we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but interestingly, the, the thing about Islam that I find interesting, and it, and it makes for some good apologetic discussion, is in name they affirm so much of what Christianity and Judaism teaches. But then they say, but the books that you have that record those events have been changed. So it's a theoretical belief in the teachings of these prophets, but it's not an actual belief in the teachings of these prophets. Because what Muslims wouldn't say is, well, there's another book to look to outside of, let's say, the Torah to find it about Moses. Or there's another book to look to outside of Daniel to find it about Daniel. No, they, they in theory say the Torah and the Injil, what they call the gospel, and the people that are in those books were prophets from God. But then you say, well, then what did what did Moses say that you believe in? Or what did David say or Solomon or Joseph say that you believe in? Well, they have no source material because their only source is the Bible and they dismiss it as having been changed. Even though Muhammad never said that. So Muhammad in the 6th century affirmed what he called the Injil, the Gospel, and the Torah the books of Moses. So in the 6th century, he affirmed those things to be true and worthy of study. But since then, Muslims have dismissed them. And I would argue that that's largely because Muhammad never read them or had access to them. And when Muslims started to actually be confronted by Christians or Jews with those books, they realized there's contradictions between the Quran, which is about the size of the New Testament, and the Gospels and the Torah, so they have to dismiss it as having been changed because it doesn't add up. So just to give you a little bit of a historical timeline, keep in mind that we have all these Old Testament books being written, right? We have New Testament books being written this side of the cross. 600 years goes by, and then we have the Quran. So Muhammad in the 7th century, says, well, you should read these. But from here forward, when you say to Muslims, well, why don't you read the Gospels and the Torah? They say, well, they've been changed. Well, it's 
it's uh, it's the simplest argument to win if a person's honest. And, and that is that we have boatloads of copies of Bibles from both of those eras in our possession today that predate Muhammad. It's not like we only have Bibles from after. No, we can actually produce manuscripts that predate Muhammad by hundreds and hundreds of years. But nevertheless, they say it's been changed. And sometimes if you're told the same thing enough, you start to believe it. So if every Muslim scholar in every mosque tells you the same thing and they all agree on it, this guy teaches this guy and this guy teaches this guy, nobody's really willing to go back and check it out, right? Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why I think Christians are doing themselves a service by continuing to teach Greek and Hebrew in our seminaries because someone out there needs to know this stuff in order to uh, be able to debate this kind of stuff on a scholastic or academic level. In terms of Islam's origins, Muslims believe that Christianity and Islam, together with Judaism, go back to the prophet and patriarch Abraham and that there are three prophets that directly descend from his sons. Muhammad descends from the elder son Ishmael and Moses and Jesus from the younger son Isaac. Well, we, we actually would agree with that. But Abraham established the settlement, which is today, which today is the city of Mecca or Mecca and built the Kaaba toward which all Muslims turn when they pray. That's where we would differ on them from like a geographical and historical perspective that if, if Abraham did that, it's certainly it's possible that he did that, but we don't have a record of that in scripture at least. What are their sacred sources? Well, they have the Quran, but they also have what's known as the Sunnah. Now, Sunnah can be spelled S-U-N-N-A in English or S-U-N-N-A-H. And the Sunnah are composed of hadiths. So hadiths are records written out by caliphs and others that came after Muhammad, recording his words, the things that he said or the things that he did or the things that he approved of. So, you know, one of the things that we, we tend to do is we look at, like, the, the external things, and we notice that Muslim women wear hijabs or headscarves. They're called different things depending on the culture, the ethnic background, burqa, hijabs, whatnot. That's actually not from the Quran. That's from the Hadiths. So the Quran doesn't mandate that, but the Hadiths written afterwards do. So this body of Hadiths, some of them are composed a, a book of writing known as the Sunnah. As I mentioned earlier, theoretically, and you should underline that word, theoretically, the Injil or gospel and the laws of Moses, the Torah, are considered the word of, words of God. Now, let me just pause there and say, I have talked to some Muslims who, when I say, what do you mean by the Torah? They would say, well, what you call Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy or what's known as the Pentateuch, but that it's been changed. But then sometimes when I talk to them about the Injil, which as best as we can tell, Muhammad would have understood to be what we call the Gospels, some of them actually believe that the Injil are not what we call the Gospels, that there's some other record of Jesus' life that are not in the Christian Bible. And others would say, no, no it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they've been changed. 
Okay. So there's a little bit of ambiguity in a lot of Muslim thinkers as to what the Injil actually is. But whatever it is, that it's a record of the life and events of Jesus Christ. But again, they don't, they don't have an, an alternative Injil or alternative Torah above and beyond the one that we understand to be the Torah and the Injil. See? So that's why I under, underline it's a theoretical belief because they believe in a book that they've never seen, supposedly, for generations and generations. Muslims do claim they've been corrupted over time and therefore practically are no longer the words of God. Now, you'll also hear Muslims talk about the five pillars. The five pillars of Islam are the five fundamentals of the faith, which are partly doctrinal but partly practical in their orientation. So the first is faith. So one must believe in one singular God and only one singular God, and that Muhammad is his messenger. So it will always be believe in God and Muhammad is his messenger. They, do they believe that Moses was his messenger? Yes. That Jesus was his messenger? Yes. But when they talk about it, 99.9% .9 of the time, it'll be God and Muhammad is his messenger. Which is interesting because theologically, he's not supposed to be higher necessarily than the other prophets, but because he's the final one, they keep pointing to him, pointing to him, pointing to him. And it's actually necessary for them to do that because if you don't focus on him and you focus on everybody equally, their messages don't line up. So this declaration of faith is called the Shahada. It's a simple formula which all the faithful pronounce. In Arabic, the first part is La ilaha illa laha. There is no God except God. Uh, ilaha, God, can refer to anything which may be tempted to put in the place of God, wealth, uh, power, and the like. And then comes Ilaha, except God, the source of all creation. The second part of the Shahada is Muhammadun Rusululaha. Muhammad is the messenger of God. A message of guidance has come through a man. Uh, like us. So they, they retain the uh, Arabic, right? Because Arabic is considered the kind of a language of God. And whereas we use translations, and we do say, well, the Bible is inspired in an errant, technically in its original manuscripts. We don't force people to learn Greek or Hebrew sitting in the pews of our churches. We can say, you know, you can read and study a good, solid English translation for all of your life, and you can be okay. And we don't make you recite or per, or uh, pronounce certain statements of faith in, in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. But in Islam, it's very important that certain things are said and only said in Arabic. And Arabic is considered the language of scholars and the true language of Scripture and a special language in that sense, especially classical Arabic, because there's different strands and brands of Arabic as well. Like the Arabic in Saudi Arabia is classical Arabic. The Arabic in Morocco, uh, on the you know western side of North Africa, is substantially different. So there's kind of the spiritual Arabic, which is the classical Arabic, and there's different versions of Arabic or strands and brands of Arabic that have come out of that. So you need to say this and you need to believe it. 
Then there's prayers. So Salat is the time for obligatory prayers, and a good Muslim will perform them on schedule five times a day. If you're in a Muslim country, there will be various chants that are read over the loudspeakers of the local mosque in order to remind people in the neighborhood that now is the time to pray. And some of them take place, one of them takes place when most people are sleeping. So it, it can be quite distracting, but that's what they believe. And of course, we would agree with them. Prayer is a good thing. They direct their, uh, they believe that the prayer, uh, prayer is a direct link between the worshiper and God, unlike uh, certain versions of Christianity, like Roman Catholicism, that technically believes you pray through a mediator, which is your priest. There's no hierarchical authority in Islam. There are no priests. So prayers are led by learned people who know the Quran and chosen by the congregation. So it's somewhat democratic in that respect. These five prayers contain verses from the Quran. They're said in Arabic, the language of revelation, no matter what language you speak. So you could be uh, living in a, uh, a country where maybe you're, you know, first language is one of the Indian languages. But if you're a Muslim, you got to learn the prayers in Arabic. And that's how you'd pray them, even though that may be the only thing you, you know in Arabic. So you could be reciting things that you don't really fully understand. So you would, you would say these uh, five times a day. And then you can offer personal supplication in your own language. So you can ask for things from God in whatever language you you speak, but the basics of the prayer need to be said in Arabic. They're said at dawn, noonday, mid-afternoon, sunset, and nightfall, and thus determine the rhythm of the entire day. Although it's pre preferable to worship together in a mosque, so devout Muslims will live near the mosques. I live near a mosque. That, that's why there's a lot of Muslims that live around me, because it's walking distance to the mosque, and we see Muslims all the time walking to the mosque. It's better to pray in the mosque. And a Muslim will pray almost anywhere. They can pray in fields, offices, factories, universities. Many people have told me stories about working with Muslims who have to pause during the day and put a prayer mat down and pray and whatnot. Vis visitors to the Muslim world are, are often struck by the centrality of prayers in daily life. And I can testify to that because when I was in Morocco for a month, I mean, it, it's, it's quite obvious. I mean, this is a Muslim country. I mean, you're just falling asleep in the guy comes over the loudspeaker like a block away and wakes you up calling people to prayer. So it's, it's very obvious, very out in the open and very much part of their culture to the point that in many countries that are predominantly Muslim, they, they don't understand because they've never experienced the idea of a divide between the political and the religious. They don't understand that. So I've told many of you the story when I was in a Muslims home in Morocco about 20 years ago and they were showing me the vanilla ice video I told you guys this right so they're showing me the vanilla ice video and they're dancing to it carrying all these young guys and then they did say to me but why does he do th they like the music but why does he act like that when he's a Christian speaking about some of his immoral uh, choices and I was struck by that. I said, what, what do you mean? So why, why does he do that when he's a Christian? I said, why do you think he's a Christian? Well, he's from the U.S. And we had a lengthy conversation. I don't remember how long it went, but it went on for a while. And I couldn't get it through their heads that the United States is not all Christian. They just couldn't comprehend that. And 
uh, it's, they just have this notion, well, everybody here is Muslim, so everybody there is Christian. They would be aware of a diaspora of Muslims that have moved there, but basically everybody else is Christian. And these were guys that were uh, in college and university and whatnot. So that's interesting when we, when we uh, <clears throat> read of um, like wars where, let's say, it's usually the U.S. or Britain going into a Muslim country. No matter why you're there, even if you're there for peacekeeping, they view it as a triumphant act of Christianity over and above Islam. So that's why they fight. Because in their mind, they they think that this, like even Canada, they think Canada is actually a Christian country. And you and I are here thinking, no, it ain't. <laughs> but they think that. And it's part of their worldview and culture. And until you understand that, it's very difficult to understand why they they get so upset when Christian armies... They think our Christian armies, we know they're not, but Christian armies come into their country, even if it's to keep the peace. They're suspicious of that. See? In Canada? Yeah, that's what he said. Well, the... Well, the uh, Certainly there are lots of Christians in China. You said China, right? Yeah. yeah, there's lots of Christians in China, and because of persecution, some of them are quite strong Christians. There's also lots of cults in China. There's also a sizable percentage of Chinese Muslims in China, too. When I was at the Lutheran Seminary in Waterloo, they... Uh, had a prayer chapel in a Lutheran school that they actually advertised on campus. They wanted Muslims and Hindus and everybody to come and pray there. It wasn't the university that asked them to do it. They wanted because they sort of thought everybody has, everybody's sort of okay, right? So the, the translation of the call to prayer, this is the one that would come over the loudspeaker in many of these countries or be maybe uh, stated at a mosque is, God is most great, God is most great. So that's repeated four times. It's a lot of repetition. I testify there's no God except God. I testify there's no God except God or Allah. I testify that Muhammad's a messenger of God. I testify that Muhammad's a messenger of God. Come to prayer, come to prayer. Come to success in this life and the hereafter. Come to success. God is most great. God is most great. There's no God except God. So it's very pointed. It's it's repetitious. But there's basically about three or four elements that are in it that are repeated over and over and over again to drive it home, right? And then the third uh, pillar of Islam is almsgiving. So one of the most important principles is to understand all things belong to God. So that sounds very much like Christianity or Islam. And that wealth is therefore held in trust by human beings. The word zakat means both purification and growth. Our possessions are purified by setting aside a, a proportion for those in need. And like the pruning of plants, this cutting back balances and encourages new growth. So each Muslim calculates his or her own zakat individually. For most purposes, this involves the payment each year of 2.5% of uh, one's capital. So it's, it's not, not even close to a tithe, but it is a percentage of one's income. A pious person may also give as much as he or she pleases as sadaqah and, and, and does so preferably in secret. Although this word can be translated as voluntary charity, it has a wider meaning. The prophet said, even meeting your brother with a cheerful face is charity. 
So you can sort of consider that uh, to be your uh, sadaka. Kind of like some Christians that say, well, my tithe is just my presence. You're so privileged to have me in your church. You know. And the prophet said, charity is necessary for every Muslim. He, he was asked, what if a person has nothing? The prophet replied, he should work with his own hands for his benefit and then give something out of such earnings to charity. So there's some verses in the Bible that sound a little bit like that. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat or let him save up every week a portion of his income and give it. The companions asked, well, what if he is not able to work? The prophet said, he should then help the poor and needy persons. The companions further asked, so what if he cannot even do that? And the prophet said, uh, he should ur urge others to do good. So the companion said, what if he lacks that also? And the prophet said, he should check himself from doing evil. That is also charity. So basically, you know, it's just addressing the different, I guess, levels of ability that people have. So Ramadan then, you've all heard of Ramadan, I assume. Uh, Ramadan is takes place uh, every year in the month of Ramadan in the Islamic calendar. It's the name of the month. And there's I think it changes just slightly depending on the year. But uh, during Ramadan, Muslims fast. But it's not a 24-hour fast. They fast from first light until sundown. So just during the daylight hours. And they are to abstain from everything. I mean, even drinking. So you're not even allowed to have a glass of water. or So you abstain from food, drink, and sexual relations. There are some exceptions. Those who are sick, who are elderly, or on a journey, or women who are pregnant are permitted to break the fast and make up an equal number of days later in the year. If they are physically unable to do this, then they must feed a needy person for every day they missed. So children begin to fast and observe the prayer from puberty onwards, but many uh, start earlier. There are certain things, obviously, probably for the purpose of stressing the faith or inculcating the faith in the lives of their children they do earlier. So, for instance, the hijab is obviously to um, keep men from lusting after women, apparently, but you see, like, four- and five-year-old girls running around with them on. So it's more of a religious symbol than, like, I, there's not like, I don't think they're trying to keep the four- or five-year-old girls away from the four- or five-year-old boys, right? They're just not mature at that point. But it's it's a certain way of promoting the faith through physical acts as early as possible. Now, although the fast is most beneficial to health, it is regarded principally as a method of self-purification, cutting oneself off from worldly comforts. Even for a short time, a fasting person gains true sympathy with those who go, grow hungry. Now, having said that, there's these huge meals that more than make up for the fast later on in the evening. So people probably actually consume more calories during Ramadan than they would otherwise because it becomes sort of a cultural, social, extended family experience, kind of a, a, a real party and a, and a highlight within uh, the social dimension of, of Islamic cultures or family groups. And then we have the Hajj. The Hajj is an annual pilgrimage to Mecca. And it is actually an obligation for those who are physically and financially able to perform it at least one time in your life. You're supposed to take the Hajj, this trip. So there's about 2 million people that go to Mecca each year from every corner of the globe providing a unique 
a unique opportunity for different nations to meet one another. Although Mecca is always filled with visitors, the annual Hajj begins in the 12th month of the Islamic year, which is lunar, not solar, so that the Hajj in Ramadan falls sometimes in summer, sometimes in winter. Pilgrims wear special clothes, simple gar- garments they strip, that strip away any class and distinction and culture, so that they all stand equal before God. Now, having said that, then they come back and they put Hajj on their the license plate of their SUV, or people call them Hajj. So it, there, there's a social status to having taken the, the trip, no question about it. The rites of the Hajj, which are of Abrahamic origin, including circling the Kaaba seven times, again, according to Islam, and going seven times between the mountains of Safa and Marwa, as did Hagar during her search for water. Then the pilgrims stand together in the wide plain of Arafah and join in prayers for God's forgiveness, in which... Uh, in what is often thought of as a preview of the last day of judgment. So this takes place on different days. So one day you're camping here, another day you're camping in the desert without protection, another day you're circling around certain mountains, another day you're throwing stones, seven stones at this wall, because that's supposed to be symbolic of a time when the devil came to Abraham, according to their tradition, and he threw stones at the devil, I think on two or three occasions. That's also the time when people get trampled. So the 2006, you might recall, there was something like 350 people that were trampled because there's so many people trying to perform these acts. Sometimes people are actually killed in the process. And in previous centuries, the Hajj was an arduous undertaking. Today, however, Saudi Arabia provides millions of people with water, modern transportation, up-to-date health uh, facilities. The close of the Hajj is marked by a festival, in Aid al-Adha, or Adha, which is celebrated with prayers and the exchange of gifts in Muslim communities everywhere. Uh, this and the Aid al-Fatur, a feast day commemorating the end of Ramadan, are the main festivals of the Muslim calendar. So this is very significant. So these are the five things. So if you want to be a good Muslim, you have to have faith in the one God and recite the creed. You have to pray five times a day if possible, give alms, two and a half percent. I've even heard uh, some people just say three, just rounding it off. Participate in Ramadan yearly and take the Hajj at least once in your lifetime if you're physically and financially able uh, to do so. So these are called the five pillars of Islam. So if you ask a Muslim, what do you need to do to, not that they would use this language, but what do you need to do to get saved? Or what do you need to do to be made right with God? Or what do you need to do to get into paradise? These are the five things they would point to, and they're called the five pillars of Islam. They're very, very important uh, for Muslims to participate in these things. Okay. So any questions then about, questions or comments about the five pillars? Robert? Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, historically, it would have been limited to the Muslim world because they were living in a strictly Muslim world for the most part. So their charitable acts would have been done. However, 
the Muslims living in the West have, I would say in the last even 10 years, learned a lot from churches. So they're, they have outreach committees. They are doing outreach into the community. They're everything from, we live near the mosque, so I read the sign all the time. We get flyers and literature in our mailbox. So they will do like educational seminars. They will do blood drives. They will serve in different community groups. They'll serve, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I was even looking at the Windsor Star today. There's a section there on the Rotarians, the Rotary Group, and there's a Muslim lady participating in that. So they are they are involved in, in the community. But historically, Islam was located within Islamic governments and Islamic cultures and Islamic societies. The religion and the society was one and the same. Whereas while there are some countries like that, a lot of Christians have been minority or just a part of the broader populace. So they've tended to try to reach out past Christianity to feed the poor and that kind of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did you guys all hear that there? Children's Aid Society is receiving a lot of help from the Islamic Society. Yeah. I think in the West they are reaching out, obviously like we are for evangelistic purposes, but I think they're doing doing that. Yeah. I don't know to what degree, Robert, and it may vary from mosque to mosque or society to society. Now, they do have the equivalent of the Red Cross. They have the Red Crescent. But again, that's more in Islamic-type countries. Yeah. Dela? Oh, okay. Well, no, actually, you're not even sure after you've made it. So in Islamic theology, you could be in heaven for a million years and then get thrown out. So you don't have, there's no, Christians debate eternal security in the here and now, but we all agree on eternal security once you get there. Muslims don't believe in eternal security here or there. So, so in answer to your question, uh, if you could just hold off on that, I have a section in the notes where I'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay. Yep. Glenn. Um, where do we get the idea that uh, Muhammad Abbas? Based upon the teachings of Muhammad and the hadiths and tradition, not based upon historical. Based upon what they would perceive to be revelation. Um, this would be where he. Uh, I'm not sure if it's the, the I'm not sure specifically if it's when he supposedly offered Ishmael to God, but it was one of his altars which he built to give an offering to God. But they also believe, knowing you know how in the Christian Bible it talks about Abraham taking Isaac 
through the altar and God provided the ram. They believe that story's wrong and that was actually Ishmael that was taken. Yeah. Jonathan? Right, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Well, actually, Muhammad would like us because Muhammad did believe that Christians and Jews were people of the book. Modern Islam, there's a, there's a greater segregation between Christians and Islam now than there was in Muhammad's day. Muhammad actually would have liked you and believed that you would be in heaven with him or paradise in some way, shape, or form. If you, I mean, unless you were a polytheist, for instance. Yeah. Okay. Okay, why don't we take a, a, a brief break and uh, then we'll come back and talk about some Muslim theology. All right, okay. So now what we're going to do is we're just going to work through some basic doctrinal stuff about what Muslims believe. Some of this is similar to Christianity, some of it's distinct. So with regard to creation, they believe in creation ex nihilo, as Christians do. That's the Latin term for out of nothing. And that people have dignity and worth, but they do not believe people are made in the image of God. So their understanding of anthropology or the doctrine of humanity is actually somewhat different than Christianity on two major points. This is the first one. We're not made in the image of God. We're created from dust, and Allah breathed life into us. Okay, fine. But here's the next point. They believe that people are born clean slates without sin. So they do not believe in the doctrine of original sin uh, like Christians would, and that Christians can overcome sin through acts of the will. So you can freely will yourself into submission to God through religious effort, and there's nothing holding you back. Well, that's radically different than Christianity in that all Christians believe in some form of sinful corruption in human beings that either completely disable them from seeking out and pursuing God, or at least hinder them from seeking out and pursuing God. So our understanding of the makeup of human beings is a little more dismal than uh, Islamic understanding of the constitution of humanity. We're not made in the image of God, and we're not intrinsically or intuitively sinful. So that's why in that system it makes sense, well, you just abide by a certain set of rules, and... Uh, you can be made right with Allah. Whereas we believe in grace because even if you were able to adhere to all the rules, there's still something about you that holds you back from fully pleasing and honoring God on the level of attitude and motive and all that kind of stuff. So salvation then can come and sin can be atoned for through commensurate or greater acts of merit and confession. 
there's no guarantee of paradise and Allah does not have to be merciful should he choose. So there's nothing in he is merciful, but he doesn't have to be merciful. He's not bound to be merciful. The day of judgment teaches that life is a test for each individual. Every for everyone must choose whether he will or will not follow the commands of Allah. On this day, a person will be resurrected and asked to account for what he did when he was alive. Those with good rewards will be rewarded and enter paradise. Those with bad records will be punished and sent to hell. This belief developed within the individual an awareness of Allah's presence and desire to obey his laws sincerely and voluntarily. So one day you will give a reckoning for the way that you have uh, lived your life. Predestination. Christians sometimes debate predestination with regard to our soteriology, but Muslims believe that predestination applies to the will and plans of God, that nothing happens without the knowledge and permission of Allah. While we may not understand why certain things happen, it is part of his divine will for uh, our lives. Now, with regard to God himself... There are certain characteristics of the way God is described in Christianity that overlap the way God is described in Islam. And because of this, there has been an attempt to, within Christian apologetics, to appeal to the fact that we both actually are trying to worship the same God, Muslims and Christians alike. So therefore, we could use the word Allah or God interchangeably. It's the same God because God is one, God is merciful, and a lot of the characteristics are the same. But I think we should feel very uncomfortable with that because there are a number of things, one in particular that's very important, about the way God is described in Islam that is radically different than the way God is described in Christianity. And that relates to uh, the Trinitarian nature of God. So keep in mind that when we talk about the Trinity, we're not just trying to describe relationships between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're trying to describe something ontological, meaning something that has to do with the very being and character of God, the makeup of God. So when we read Scripture, yes, we have made up the word Trinity, in order to describe a concept that seems to be evident about God in Scripture. And that, that concept is, is that God is an eternally relational being who exists self-sufficiently within a relationship of three, but is one God. So we only believe in one God. And that, that one God or one essence manifests himself to us in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that this construct is unlike anything in the created order and therefore is somewhat mysterious and difficult for us to understand because there's nothing we can relate it to. But we believe that that is true, that that's how God is presented. And I've, I've stated this before in theology classes that the thing I find interesting about the Trinity is not just that it's, it's a doctrine that is unlike anything else in creation, but it answers a lot of questions about God. It answers the question of uh, 
why does God want to have a relationship with me? Or how is God even able to have a relationship with me? If God exists for all of eternity outside of relationship, with no knowledge, experience of relationship, or nothing about his character that even implies relationship, how does a non-relational eternal being suddenly become relational when there's nothing in his makeup that positions him to do that? Whereas in Trinitarianism, we have a God who's eternally relational. That's part of his makeup. And therefore, that God is able to enter into relationship with created beings because it's part of his nature, his makeup. Whereas in, in the Islamic conception of God, God is not triune. God is a static one who exists forever as a static one with no relational element or dynamic to his personhood. Well, the Jewish, the Jewish religion today would reject the Trinity, but we would, but, but we would, we would, we would trace. It's true that the New Testament gives us more information on God, just like it gives us more information on every doctrine. We believe in the doctrine of progressive revelation, that the reader of the New Testament knows more than the reader of the Torah alone. But that's not a different God. It's the same God who's progressively revealing himself to us. Oh, they would reject the Trinity, of course. So you're saying Allah, you know, he's, he's not Trinity. You don't Jews Jews don't worship the fullness of God. They worship God partially. But you're also held accountable for God's revelation of himself. So because the fullness of God has been revealed to us in Christ, to deny Christ is to deny God, period. So one could say then that while in theory they're worshiping the same God, in practice they're not. And it's not that they're worshiping another God, they're just not worshiping God, the true God. Because they've rejected the revelation of God in Christ. So let me just let me just I just want to clarify one thing and this may help. Uh, what I'm not saying is that prior to our full knowledge of God as triune that a person couldn't worship that God. I'm not saying that. I'm just helping us to understand why the doctrine of the Trinity is a beautiful and necessary doctrine if we look at the full scope of God's revelation of himself to us. In particular the relational element asking the question how does God relate to humanity? So. so Allah is not really the God of the universe. Absolutely not. And, and Jewish, Nor is he a God of grace. Don't really, not, if you were Jewish today and you didn't worship, you thought If you were Jewish today and you thought you were worshiping God, you would not be. No, in theory you wouldn't be, but in practice you wouldn't be either because there's no intercessor connecting you with that God. And you've rejected the fullness of that God's revelation of himself to you. And you don't have a Holy Spirit that even allows you to make a connection with God. And on and on and on. you got a whole bunch of things against you. Keep in mind that there are people who are Trinitarian that aren't worshiping God either. Because they have no relationship with that God. They've never been born again. So it goes beyond having the proper concept. You also have to have had an encounter. But if we're strictly looking at it in terms of, well, is the God you're describing the same as the God I'm describing? For the Jew, no. For the Muslim, no. For the Hindu, no. No, 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 no. They're not. What did they, who did they worship up until before Muhammad? 
No, Allah is just a, 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 a Arabic name for God, but prior to Muhammad's monotheism, they were polytheists, worshipping gods of nature, gods of the wind. Yeah, but most Arabs would have would never have been exposed to the Judeo-Christian faith. They would have had no exposure to it. They might have had some trade with Jewish people and you know, maybe some conversation about the nature of their faith, but they were worshiping idols. So Muslim is a person who believes in Islam. So Islam is the name of the faith. Muslim is the name of the person who follows the faith. And it means one who has surrendered. Yeah. And then from there, say, well, you know, the God I worship is like this. Yeah. Yeah, you could ask questions. What I like to do is I like to answer that same question the same way I ask answer questions about Jesus to any anybody regardless of faith. It says, oh, I believe in Jesus. So, okay, you're saying Jesus, J-E-S-U-S. You're saying God, G-O-D. You're saying Allah, A-L-L-A-H. But those are just words. What do those words mean and represent? So just like you might say, well, I know Aaron. Okay, well, tell me about Aaron. Well, he's he's short, he's fat, he's got dark curly hair, he's got brown eyes, he's Asian, you know, whatever. That's not this Aaron, right? I know it's hard to believe. Yeah, it's hard to believe. But then you, you would be right to say, well, that's actually not the Aaron that I know. We must be talking about different Aarons. Well, it's the same, it's the same word, but it's not the same person, right? So you can't just use the same word and assume it's the same concept or description of the same individual. So you can't say, well, I, I, I worship Jesus too. Well, who is he? Well, he's just a great moral teacher that didn't claim to be God and he lived in wherever, uh, you know, Ireland. It, that's not my Jesus. And if you say, well, I worship God, you worship God, it's the same God. Well, what's he like? And in the course of conversation, you discover, well, my God's compassionate but not gracious. My God's a static one, but he's not triune. Then it's not the same God. You're using the same words, but it's a different concept or different entity behind it, right? So you have to, when you're, when you're talking to people of different faiths, this maybe applies broadly to definitions across the board. When you even talk about salvation, what does that mean? Like, What do you mean by salvation? I've shared this with you before when you're talking to Orthodox Roman Catholics, when they say, well, I'm trusting in Jesus for my salvation, which they will say, well, then you would be wise to ask the question, alone? And an Orthodox Catholic would say, well, no, it's not alone, it's faith plus works, if they're a good Catholic. So then you're like, aha, okay, so we thought we were using the same language, but in fact our concept of salvation was actually different. So it's the same in Islam, even if uh, a Muslim uses the English word God and not the Arabic word Allah, say, well, I worship God, you worship God. Okay, well, we're worshiping something, but the question is, how do you define that something? And it's a, there's different, it's a different concept. There's overlap, of course, but there, there also are different concepts. And you could get into, there's a lot of debate whether 
whether the Islamic God is actually a loving God, because there's different words that are used in, in, in Arabic to describe God. And uh, a lot of Muslims now will use the, the English word love, our God is loving. But 20 years ago, you probably never would have heard that. You would have heard words like compassionate. Okay, well, that sounds similar, but let's talk about what that is. And so their concept of God, like a God who empathizes, who cares for human beings, who, who has like a, in a sense, uh, a heart for them. That's not, is, that's not the Islamic God. If a modern Muslim tells you that, they're being influenced by Western categories or Western concepts of God. That's not Quranic. That's not historical Islam. It's different. The Islamic God is described as merciful, but he's not historically described as gracious. And, and, and we could have a conversation about the importance of a God who's gracious, right? And we talk about that a lot as people of the Reformation. So, Jonathan? Part of it, yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, it's true that the genre of the Bible is way more diverse than the Quran. The Quran is basically all one genre, and I don't even know what you'd call it because it's it's very different. Like I've I've never read the Quran from beginning to end, but I've read huge chunks of it, and I don't mean this to be facetious, but I find it very difficult to read. Like after a while, it's like whoa, my head's spinning here because it's hard to understand it, just purely. Just reading the grammar, it's like, I, okay, I thought I understand, and it's, I don't know what's going on here. So it's very difficult to understand. Whereas, and this is not a this is not an apologetic argument for the superiority of Christianity. I'm just making a, a statement here that the Bible uh, is much more diverse in its genre. So you actually have large chunks of it that are narrative, but even the parts that aren't narrative fit into the overall narrative of redemption. Whereas the Quran doesn't read that way, so it's a little more difficult to see how God interacts with people, although you can pick out the rules and regulations throughout it, which is rather easy to do. Yeah. Yes, Julie? Yes. Yeah, there are. It is true that one of the distinguishing marks. Well, if you want to be really pious, you would memorize the whole book, which is divided into surahs, kind of like chapters, but kind of not. Okay, so uh, Dela.
I, I don't know the context. So I don't know if he meant that you can come from a variety of backgrounds or whether um, and there are some Christians that teach that Jesus is the sole means of atonement for sin. But you may never heard about Jesus or the cross or anything. But if you respond to the light of whatever religion you're in, that God will sort of give you commensurate reward by so if you're a committed Muslim, but that's all you've ever known, then based upon the merits of Christ, he'll let you into heaven. There are some that teach that, but I don't, I don't know the context that you were listening to. So that maybe he's saying that all religions, if they're properly lived out, and there's this good motivation, maybe he's saying that based upon the merits of Christ, God will let you into heaven. I, I, don't, I can't comment because I didn't. But that, that might be what he was saying, or maybe he was speaking out against that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Joy? Well, we're not going to finish Islam tonight, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a university student who's asking questions about the SBC and the discussion with them. Mm. But what about a Muslim family who are very happy in their faith and they pray for everything right so much, but it's admirable, you know? How do we present the Lord to them? Uh-huh. Like, I'm in their homes for hours every week. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's about as basic as the question gets, right? <laughs> 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 and I don't have a silver bullet in my back pocket. <laughs> um, well, first of all, you can't lead anybody into a saving relationship with Christ. It is a, a miracle of God's grace, and therefore it does require prayer and fasting and diligence and hope and, and the work of God. And uh, unfortunately, because Islam is so rooted in culture and ethnicity and history and is defined over and against Christianity in in the last number of centuries, it's actually very rare for a devout Muslim to become a Christian. If you were to compare them to say, it's much easier to move an atheist into Christianity from a human perspective. It's very easy from a human perspective to move a Catholic into Christianity. But there's there's multiple hurdles to overcome to move a Muslim, especially a Muslim in an intact family, into Christianity. Again, speaking from a human perspective, most converts, missionaries will tell you, in Muslim countries are single men who don't have families. They're lonely. A missionary befriends them, and over the course of time, they come to faith in Christ, Right? And it's very difficult to break through into the family unit and to see families converted. It's not impossible. It does happen, but it's very rare. So it it can be very discouraging and very difficult. But uh, my approach is simply to to, to try to live my faith as best as I can. And that means having dialogue and discussion, debating the points, um, to the point that I've covered all the mains, main issues 
So I've sat down with Muslims maybe, uh, you know, up to six to 12 times. But if I can spend six, 12, 24 hours with someone, if you're doing that much talking, there's really not too much more to say. In other words, at that point, you've probably covered all the bases. And if they still haven't responded, to be honest with you, I move on. I do the old shake the dust off the feet thing and move on. I, I, I have shared my faith with Muslims for a number, like specific Muslims for a number of years, but not more than maybe four or five. Because at some point, it, you know, there's other people to share your faith with. So when I'm talking to them, though, I, I do appeal to the relational side of God. I appeal to the concept of revelation. I, I do point out that you're just flat out wrong, that the Bible's been changed. That's not even, you can't even argue that from a scholastic perspective. It's just simply not true. But we have manuscripts that predate Islam. Muhammad's affirming those manuscripts to be true, we can actually show you them and you can compare them to the ones we have today and there's not changes. So if you actually want to take the time to look at that, it's, it's just simply not true. Um, on a more pastoral or human level, you appeal to issues of hope, secu security in Christ, these kinds of things that often touch like an emotional cord in people's lives. I don't spend all of my time pointing out the flaws of Islam, I also want to introduce them to God, uh, which I think is a, a, a key truth in all of apologetics, that fundamentally it's not so much debating what they believe, it's introducing them to what we call the good news. And, you know, perhaps in a moment of vulnerability, God will get a hold of them and something will stir them and they'll realize um, that they're worshiping a false god and surrender their lives to him. Or it might be that we're planting seeds for a future mass conversion to Christianity three generations from now and that we're just planting seeds and that we won't see a lot of fruit. The next generation might see a little bit more and then maybe something will be triggered and the floodgates will be open wide because of the seeds we've planted. Oh, really? Yeah, it's interesting. There's Over the years, there's been times when I've tried to... Sometimes you get tired of, like, the rigorous debate, so I've tried a different tactic. I'm just going to befriend this guy. I'm not going to immediately get into issues of truth claims but they immediately want to get into them. So you just have to. 
most Muslims, they, they actually want to talk about the substance of your faith. Debate it. They want to debate it. Maybe the men more than the women. women Could be true, yeah. I know you've had a Muslim lady over a couple doors down and, yeah. Um, not like it is in Christianity, but keep in mind though that Muhammad taught that Christians and Jews were people of the book. So you got to distinguish between Muhammad's mission, which what he he was attacking and waging war against what we would call pagans. I mean, there might have been some Jews and Christians in the mix, but I. It wouldn't surprise me that there weren't any. He was attacking pagans, idolaters, polytheists, guilty of witchcraft. As far as he was concerned, we were, we're pretty good. We're people of the book. And it's been later generations that, in fact, we, we live at a point in time where there's a greater division, I believe, between Islam and Christianity than there ever has been, just in the last 50 years. So... Uh, I read a, a book by Ben Wicks on the, the history of Palestine, for instance. And even in the 1800s and early 1900s, the Jews and the Christians essentially got along really well. Or sorry, the, the Jews and the, uh, uh, the uh, Muslims were getting along really well. And, you know, people, would, there would be some measure of intermarriage, but for the most part, they they did business together and engaged in commerce and you know you're you're kind of living in this village and you're in this village and you're past there was there was not there was not the animosity that we see in Palestine today or Israel uh so that's more of a modern thing and even uh concepts of jihad have we are living in a point in history when islam is more militant and militaristic than it probably ever has been even back to and including the days of Muhammad. So it's it's a very unique point in time where you didn't see the kind of... Uh, you even hear stories about Christian armies and Muslim armies waging war during the, the period of the Crusades, but there was still sort of a respect that somehow were like cousins or brothers somehow and but now there's more of like a gut level hatred and i gotta admit folks and i and and i'm not going to debate you on this because you're not going to convince me otherwise but i see it in the church just as much as i see it in islam i think some of the ways that the ch christians speak of islam is beyond a concern for souls and it is rooted in fear and we are not to be people of fear. We shouldn't be scared of anybody. And if we believe that the, the God who is in us is more powerful than the God who is in the world or in any other religion, yeah, obviously you can be very deeply disturbed by the actions of another religion or another group for that matter and not like it and you know be concerned on some level with its influence in a culture or whatnot. But I, I've talked to orthodox catholic and protestants about this i i am not afraid of the influence of islam on the west it, do, it doesn't concern me i'm not afraid of its political influence i don't even think about it much and i've read what you've read i'm concerned about the spiritual dimension 
I'm not concerned about Islam taking over Western culture. I do not believe that will happen. And even if it did, big deal. It's Islam taking over this crappy, immoral culture that we live in. Like, is, <laughs> It's not much of a trade-off, really. And perhaps if, if groups like is, Islam become more vigilant, it'll actually do the church a service. Because Christians will actually have to start living out their faith. And with a little bit of persecution, actually have to start thinking about what it means to actually be a Christian instead of being in a more lackadaisical, pluralistic culture like our own. So I, I, the political aspect of uh, Islam, I've studied it. I've heard a lot of people talk about it. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't scare me. I'm interested in leading Muslims to Christ, testifying about Jesus, and however that their work or our work influences the political landscape of our world, it doesn't keep me up at night. So we can talk more about that because probably most of you disagree. But. Yeah. Well, obviously they do want to kill people. You wouldn't fly planes into a building. But the aside from the fact that nearly 3,000 people died uh, in the Trade Center, um, obviously there is a, a fear, and I, I would say among a lot of Christians, a hatred. And the hatred probably has less to do with the fact that the lives were snuffed out and more to do with we want to guard Western culture from this group that we don't quite understand. And I'm not sure that our motive is necessarily always spiritual when we talk about the political influence of Islam. I think there's something else to it, that we actually think Western culture is good Monday to Saturday, but then we admit on Sundays that it's not. So Monday to Saturday, it's like we want to protect it because we benefit from it, but then Sundays we're like, well, maybe it's really not so great if we preach against it. Um, but my my overall point is that if we have a you know a lesbian premier, for instance, I don't hear a lot of Christians talking about that. But if it was a Muslim, everybody would be talking about, it and they'd be afraid. But if she's a lesbian and she's white, oh well, ah, it's maybe mildly disturbing, but big deal. And the question is, like, is one better than the other? Uh, why is it that we? Christians aren't all up in arms when a homosexual or an overt atheist or a person that says they're a Christian but's living very different is running the country or is our MP or is our mayor or is our counselor or whatever. But if it's a Muslim, all of a sudden the antennas go up and we're, we're afraid. And I can tell you, if you're afraid of people, it's very hard to love them. You know, it's very difficult to love people that you're afraid of. And, and it just perplexes me. Why are we afraid of this particular group of people? I'm not saying I agree with them. I don't. I'm not saying that I think their motives are necessarily pure, even when it comes to politics. I don't. But 
nor are the homosexuals, nor, nor are the non-practicing Christians. Their motives aren't pure either. So they don't scare me. I'm not scared to go into the mosque. I'm not scared when I see a Muslim. I don't walk the other, go to the other side of the street. It doesn't, doesn't fear me. Well, I think from a, like a, a obviously like a, a self protect protecting my body and my my property. If someone's coming at me wielding a knife, regardless of whether they're a Muslim or not, there's going to be a human fear. But I'm talking about it more on a spiritual level. That in the West, we have a lot of Christians that are stirring the pot and telling us. I've heard this and this to be afraid of Islam coming to the West. Be afraid, be very afraid. Why are we afraid? Now, I, I mean, I've been to uh, the Middle East, and by virtue of the fact that I probably look like an American, you know, you're kind of, you're a little more aware of your surroundings. You know, I've been hooted at and called over in Nazareth, which is a very Islamic town within Israel, and I'm going to keep walking, right? Or I had a couple couple un- uncomfortable moments in um, in Morocco many years ago where um, some Muslim men asked me to sign papers giving them permission to marry German women because in their mindset if you're white you're Christian so a Muslim man can marry a Christian woman but she has to have a Christian man sign off on it regardless of the country so I was asked by these Muslim two Muslim men to sign papers for these two German women that they wanted to marry. And, and I said I, I wouldn't do it. And I probably shouldn't have said this, but I also said to the women in private, I said, the other reason why I don't want to do it is because I hear stories all the time of Muslim men marrying European women just to get into Europe, and then they divorce them. Well, they go back and tell these guys this. <laughs> and I'm walking out of this restaurant, and this dude was huge. And the other guy was little. I felt I could take him, but this one guy. And uh, he said to me, tonight you sleep tomorrow. And he goes like this. I didn't sleep very well that night. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I felt that. I was in a, you know, it wasn't like in the most secure of hotels. It was like $2 American a night, right? And there was like a 90-year-old lady guarding the door. So in terms of being afraid, like I said, uh, uh, if someone's trying to take my property, my life, it doesn't matter to me whether they're Hindu or atheist or Muslim. I'm going to defend myself, and I'm going to be concerned about that. But I'm not afraid of Islam. I'm not afraid of it. And I, you know, I want Muslims to come to Christ. I think, they're, I think Islam is fundamentally flawed. Like on its most fundamental level, it's flawed. And so you, you can have lots of debates about it, but at the same time, you, there is something powerful about um, demonstrating love and a lack of fear. And I think they do appreciate that because, by the way, most Muslims come from cultures that have a high regard for hospitality. Not all, but if they're, if they're uh, Asian or Middle Eastern, they probably have way more of an appreciation for hospitality than you and I have. So when you can demonstrate hospitality to them, 
that gives you open doors. If you're not hospitable, but everyone in their ethnic group or religion is hospitable, why would they want to talk to you? If you're over here throwing stones, but other people are inviting them in for couscous, which way are you going to go? Right? <laughs> so showing love and hospitality is, is uh, you know, an important way to kind of build those kind of relationships. So in the past, sometimes I would invite a couple Muslims into my office and um, we'd order in shawarma and we'd sit down and we'd have shawarma together and then we would have a debate kind of with when the last scoop went down. And it was more, it was, it was robust debate. And sometimes it actually, people got angry, uh, like physically upset. Sometimes me, sometimes them. <laughs> but there was a sense of, uh, there was a, a, a bit of a sense of commonality in the experience because we were enjoying a meal together, right? So, so Dela? You know, just study study history in North America. Whenever, even apart from the religious dimension, whenever a new wave of immigrants come from any country, they're kind of vilified and shunned, and then eventually they become mainstream. You know, we all go down and eat meals on Erie Street in the Italian restaurants. So there was a time when Italians were despised. And then before that, it was the Irish, right? And then there was the, the Polish, and... You know, now we have a, a huge percentage of, of Asians coming. And uh, I, I can't help but think because Islam is also tied to the ethnicity that there's a little bit of that in there too. It's human nature. Well, they're different than us. They, they eat different. They dress different. And, you know, my, 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 my grandfather fought in World War uh, II. My great, a couple of my great-grandfathers fought in World War One. You know, we've been... Evidence says that my dad's side of the family came over on the Mayflower, the boat that just came. So, you know, you're sort of like, I'm a Canadian. I'm, I'm from North America. And you sort of value certain aspects of your culture. And people come in and they're walking down the street dressed in Middle Eastern garb. It's kind of like an initial, that, that kind of is offensive. Like, don't you love my country enough to wear what I wear? But then through spiritual eyes, it's like, who cares? Like, big deal. So they're speaking a different language. You know, so they have a different diet. Let's open up doors of opportunities instead of be guilt, being guilty of shunning them and having future generations happen to say, well, sorry, we thought it was a religious battle, but in reality it was maybe there was some ethnicity going on in there too. You know, Mike? Yeah. I recognize the bigotry that he experiences and also my 
good Mike yeah and, and and in saying that you know there's all kinds of qualifications that come to mind well you know what about this aspect of Islam or this aspect well I, I, like I get it I live in the same world that you do I, I know that there's a huge number of terrorists that are Islamic I know that and I know it's fueled by religious fanaticism and all that kind of stuff but if we just sit back and we're afraid like how are we going to advance well look what value is there in being afraid? What's the value? Whereas if the evangelical church out of everyone in North America can actually be more loving, more tolerant, more hospitable, and hospitality doesn't come easy to a lot of us from European backgrounds, by the way, depending on the place in Europe, because sometimes we come from non-hospitable cultures. But if we step beyond our own cultural upbringing and we sort of uh, try to build relationships, there... The, I can't help but think that, okay, if I'm a Muslim, okay, I'm born into a Muslim home, I'm convinced that what I believe is true, I come here, I have a slightly different color skin than most people, I dress different, and I'm lonely. Who am I going to hang out with? I'm not going to hang out with Aaron Rock, because he doesn't look like me, he doesn't speak my language, he doesn't worship my God. But there's other families in the neighborhood that look like me, dress like me, speak my language, and worship my God. Why not hang out with them? And so what, it, it, it's, it's, it's normal and natural for us to want to be with people who are like us. That's where we feel comfortable. But if we only spend time with people who are like us, we create all these stupid little groups within our culture. And so a lot of people are like, well, I want to share my faith with a Muslim, but I've never even spoken with one. Well, step one is you got to do that. Step one is you actually have to have a conversation. It doesn't go from, I don't know any person, to I just led a person to Christ this week who's a Muslim. I mean, this takes years of relationship building. And if we all did our part, we could actually make some inroads. And if you believe what you believe, someone's not going to sway you if you go to their house. Like, don't be afraid of coming out converted. <laughs> uh, build, like, what, what really is there to lose besides your time? So I think that we could, yeah, you actually get some great food if it's a group from the Middle East. I used to love those little grape leaf things. Now, I'm not the kind of person that, you know, is all anal and, and fixated on, well, we never want to talk about colors. Okay, some of you are black here, some of you are Asian, some of you are white. Admit it. Right? Right? Okay, we got the Filipinos, right? Like, men and women, we make fun of the differences in our genders. 
we tease each other. I don't have a problem with teasing people about culture as long as it's in good humor. We don't need to walk around like pretending we don't know that some of us have different skin colors than others. Like what? Sometimes we're just a little bit too worked up about stuff like that. But recognizing our differences is it's part of the spice of life. It's kind of fun. But if we ignore it or ignore the ethnic dimensions that are attached to some of the world's greatest religions, like great religions like Islam, and there's, there's definitely an ethnic dimension to it. And you've got to cross not only the religious beer, but the ethnic beer and so forth to build those kind of relationships. So don't, the, the power of God that is in us is more powerful than the, than the power that is in this world. And again, I, obviously I'm afraid of axe murderers, but it's not the religious dimension. It's not, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of Muslims. I'm afraid of some Christians. <laughs> anyway, we, we're over time, but uh, hopefully this has been a, a good discussion. We'll continue it um, next week. Mm-hmm.